I did want to make sure when I was supposed to be done because, you know, he took the light down, but I saw him go get a cattle prod. <laughs> and, uh, I thought I'd better uh, check for sure on that. Um, I'm happy to be here and to talk to you. What I'm going to be doing is probably a little bit different as far as style is concerned from what you've been hearing. Uh, you might think in a way that you're in a college classroom. I can do different from this. Last time I was here, I preached a sermon. I mean, a real sermon. And uh, th there's going to be a message here, but it's, it's a little bit different style. I want to thank my friend Cliff Neat for uh, reading scripture for me. Uh, because I'm preaching on the subject of truth here, and I'll just have to consider his five minutes as uh, reading my scripture. I'm going to focus specifically on Jesus' statement in John 8:32: You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Uh, recently, I was asked to speak at a Sunday school teacher's banquet in a church a little bit north of here, and they want me to talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture. And one of the questions they want me to deal with was the Jesus Seminar. You know what the Jesus Seminar is. This is a group of self-appointed scholars. Started out with uh, somewhere around... 35 and grew to 200 and shrunk a little, but they have been meeting twice a year for the last 10 years or so, voting on the uh, sayings of Jesus, the alleged sayings of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels and also in the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, you, you've heard about this, you know, they, they each have uh, a collection of little balls, black ones, uh, gray ones, pink ones, and red ones. And as they consider a statement of Jesus, such as, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, they talk about this, and they, they discuss it, and then they vote by dropping a ball in a, in a jar or box or something, and they put a red one in if uh, they believe Jesus actually said that, a pink one if, uh, it sounds like something he would have said, so maybe, a gray one if they say, well... Probably not. And they put a black one in if they say, well, he didn't say it at all. So they've uh, pretty much completed their task, their self-appointed task. Uh, what they decided was nothing in the Gospel of John was actually said by Jesus. One thing in the Gospel of Mark was actually said by Jesus. And uh, overall... When you consider the uh, red-letter portions of the Gospels, you might con conclude that 18% of what's there was actually said by Jesus. The rest of it was added by His disciples. Well, a lot of people are uh, concerned about this, and that's why this. Uh, I think that uh, this... Uh, church wanted me to speak on this at their teacher's banquet. This gets written up a lot in places like uh, Newsweek magazine, for example. Well, I haven't really done that yet. I haven't gone there, but I've been thinking a lot about what I'm going to say. And as I've been thinking about it, here, here's one thing that I'm going to emphasize. That the Jesus Seminar is old hat. This is nothing new. It, it is typical, biased modernism. This is what modernists and liberals have been doing for a couple hundred years. And, but people are thinking, well, you know, they're getting all this publicity. They must, they must have found some new evidence. They must have come across something new that shows Jesus didn't really say these things. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. There's nothing new. There's no new evidence that's been uncovered. Why do they say Jesus did not say 70 uh, or 82% of the things recorded? It's because of their presuppositions. 
It's because they come into this presupposing that Jesus couldn't have said this or that. For example, they've concluded that the only sayings that Jesus could have have made were little short sayings, little short sayings and parables. That's all. Anything that's not a little short saying or a parable, Jesus didn't say it. I mean, that's all automatically ruled out. Also, Jesus never talked about himself. So anytime the Gospels have Jesus saying, I am such and such, well, that's automatically ruled out. And there are other things like this. Like he, never, he would never have claimed to be the Messiah. So any claim like that is just automatically ruled out. See, this is, this is the basis on which these conclusions are made. I'm just going to emphasize this, that the only thing that's different about this group is they've got good, a good PR person somewhere. They're, they're just getting a lot of good publicity. And there's nothing new in what they're doing. There is no threat whatsoever that I can see in what this uh, Jesus Seminar group is doing. It's no threat to most conservative Christians and it's no threat to our churches. It doesn't scare me at all. On the other hand, I'm holding something here in my hand that really scares me. This little uh, sheaf of papers. What this is is Xerox copy of a chapter in a book that was published last year. Uh, the book's title is Christian Apologetics in the Postmodern World. And one of the chapters is written by a professor of Bible and doctrine in one of our colleges. The title of this chapter is enough to scare you in itself. The title is, There's No Such Thing as Objective Truth. And it's a good thing, too. That's the title of this chapter. There is no such thing as objective truth. And it's a good thing, too. I'm going to take some time here and read you some of the things that this man has written. And I want you to keep in mind that this is someone coming from within the context, not of some uh, modernist, extra-liberal group like the Jesus Seminar, but someone who is teaching in the classrooms of one of our colleges, teaching children, probably of some people sitting here. He says, I want to assure you that I'm not a relativist. And it's because I don't believe in objective truth that I can't be a relativist. Now, that's baloney. It is absolutely baloney. It's very confused. But he's got it in his mind that if he doesn't believe in objective truth, then he can't be a relativist either. The fact is, he is a relativist down to his toes. He says, the whole concept of objective truth is corrupting the church and its witness to the world. He says, the correspondence definition of truth, which is the, the definition I would use, and I think the only definition that can really serve us, and it's the definition of truth that comes out of the Bible itself. He says, this correspondence theory of truth is an old paradigm of knowledge and truth, and it's a dead-end street down which we need not continue to travel. He says, I don't have a theory of truth. He says, I don't have an epistemology. So I can't be relativist on either one. My point is that Christians don't have to try to answer the truth question. And the sooner we see that we needn't, the sooner we can get on with the business of just being Christians. Forget about this whole issue of truth. He says contemporary Christians would be better off without such notions. What you need to ask, he says... And, and here he's, he's getting into the question of apologetics. And how are you going to present Christianity to the world? What kind of appeal can you make to people? He says that the real question that people need to ask is, what kind of human being do I want to become? 
And then people look around and see what community is embodying something that appeals to them. And then they join that community because this community represents what they want to become. And after they join the community, then they can learn why the people believe what they do. He says, with this kind of model, the church has a word to speak to the world. Not because it has a message that's objectively true. An alternative way of ordering human life made possible by Jesus. In other words, it's our practices. It's the way we live. Now, what's the problem here is he's making this an either or, a false choice. He says, uh, all we have to start with is a set of beliefs and a set of convictions on the basis of which we act the way we do. Beliefs and convictions. That's what we have. It's all we have, he says. And in this new paradigm that he's offering, truth is subordinate to the beliefs. There's no standard of truth independent of a set of beliefs and practices. What web of convictions, beliefs, and practices must be in place before someone can make a judgment that a certain statement is true or false? Now notice this. The belief comes first. Deciding why you believe it's true comes next. What, what, for example, about the statement, Jesus is Lord? Under this new paradigm, to acknowledge Jesus is Lord or any other thing is true, we always know for certain what is true because we're always in the grip of some belief. We believe it, therefore it's true, is the idea. And this is the case even though what we certainly know may change if our beliefs change. Well, what if we want to try to persuade others? Well, I, I mentioned this a while ago. You, uh, you present a lifestyle that appeals to people and get them to accept your uh, way of life, and then they come into your group, and then you show them evidence. He doesn't say what kind of evidence uh, to support your lifestyle. Now, notice he says, uh, the model I've been arguing for is a model of persuasion in which the facts that one cites are available only because certain convictions have already been assumed. Now, I want to ask you, how is this different from the Jesus seminar who comes in presupposing certain things cannot be true? What this guy is saying is, well, we just have to presuppose that what we believe is true. How can, you, how can you argue with anybody on that basis? How can you defend your faith on that basis? Well, that doesn't bother him because he's not concerned about defending it. He says, once you give up the notion of objective truth, which he's advocating, it becomes clear that what is needed is some reason for non-Christians to give us a hearing. And that reason will be the way they see us live. He says, I realize there are plenty of Christians who think it makes good sense to say that the proposition, Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe, is objectively true. <laughs> well, I want to confess, I'm one of those people who believes it makes good sense to say that the statement, <coughs> Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, is objectively true. But he says, um, <clears throat> he goes on to say what that means is, that it would be true whether anybody believed it or not. That is, uh, if you believe it's objectively true, then it would be true whether anybody believed it or not. But he says that's not the case. If nobody believed it, it wouldn't be true. He says, succumbing to the temptation, succumbing to the temptation to say that even that statement is objectively true is deadly for the church. Because there's no place you can stand to make this judgment. In other words, there's no objective place to stand in order to come to that conclusion. If Christians are compelled to, to claim that Jesus is Lord of the universe, then that can never be objectively true. 
or we would be bowing down to the God of objectivity. This means that what will give our testimony authority will not be what we say is objectively true, such that any reasonable person would be required to take us seriously. Rather, what will lend our testimony authority is that by the grace of God, we'll be able to live in such a way that we're consistent. Let me sum this up. I'm not going to read any more from him, but here's what he's saying. The old paradigm of objective truth means what is true determines what we believe. I like that. But he's saying it's the other way around. What we believe determines what's true. Now, no, I'm not going to. Uh, Not on tape anyway. Last last time I did that on tape, uh, the tape went all around the country and... uh, There were some things that uh, I regretted that I'd said. I don't regret saying any of this. This is objective. Uh, Let me say. Maybe maybe he will say this isn't really him. But here it is. You can come up and look afterwards if you want. Anybody can come up and look uh, if you want. I'd, I'd just rather not say it on tape. Now... If this had been the only example of this sort of thing that that I had, I I wouldn't have talked about this today. I wouldn't have talked about it. But about about a month ago, or a month or six weeks ago, I had a telephone call from a preacher, a preacher that I know had as a student, in fact. And he called with a, a sad story about another professor of Bible and theology in another one of our colleges, who is teaching the same thing. It goes under the name of postmodernism. Postmodernism. And according to this preacher who called me, this professor says, well, he's not a postmodernist in the sense of the secular deconstructionism, but he has adapted this to the Christian message and he attacks what he calls pre-modernism, which is probably what many of us here would fall under, and also anti-modernism, which is what the rest of us would fall under. And he says, those ways of going about truth no longer work. We've got to be post-modernists now. And this preacher was very concerned when he talked to me because he had examples of people who had sat in this man's classes and who had been uh, messed up in their thinking. He he told me that he was going to call the, uh, or get in touch with the trust. Well, he did talk to the president, and the president seemed concerned. But when they tried to take it to the different level, to the level of trustees, He's afraid that it won't uh, make any difference. You know, th- this, is a, this is a rather subtle thing. This is subtle. This is not uh, an open, out-and-out saying, uh, well, I don't believe in Jesus or I don't believe in the Bible. It's not like that. It's, it's actually attacking the foundations, and it's going on below what you can see. And a lot of people won't be able to see anything when they look at this or look at the outlines of this man's uh, classroom material. And so he's a little bit pessimistic. I talked to him uh, about a week ago on this, see where things stood. He's a little bit uh, pessimistic on it. I said a while ago, this scares me. I'm frightened by this. Uh, For one thing, uh, I guess job security (laughs) is on my mind. Hey, if there's no such thing as truth, I'm out of a job. Truth, this, this is my business. This is my job. This is my calling. Well, uh, that's being a little bit facetious there. More seriously, what we're witnessing here is a movement that's a lot broader than our churches. It's it's in the secular world in general. It's a very destructive movement. In fact, they like to call themselves deconstructionists tearing down 
It's also present in the religious world. Uh, Feminist theology has embraced it because the whole point of, of this is you can reject what anybody else has said and create your own theology. Make up your own meanings in interpreting Scripture. In evangelicalism, it's getting a a hold. And as I've already pointed out, even in our brotherhood, in some influential places. In my opinion, this is an intellectual movement that's far more dangerous than the challenge to biblical inerrancy that raised its ugly head about 25 years ago. You see, when, uh, when we were discussing this question of whether or not the Bible is inerrant or whether it has errors in it, the question there was, how do you decide? If the Bible is errant, that is, if it's not inerrant, then how do you decide which biblical claims are true and which ones are false? And that's a serious issue. But you see here, this is totally different. What we are being told here is that there really just isn't any such thing as objective truth. Now, the implications to that are staggering. I want to suggest, uh, before I actually get into my, my preaching here, how we can respond to this challenge First of all, as far as I know, those who are promoting this postmodern approach to Christianity are not denying that Jesus is Lord. They're not denying that Jesus is Savior. It's just that such a confession cannot be objectively true. And we can't give any objective evidence or reasons for believing it. Second thing, it seems to me that somebody out there, some of you preachers, some of you teachers, are going to have to do some study of this. I'd like to myself, but I've got too many other things already started, and my publisher, College Press, is a little bit upset with me for starting something and then not finishing, starting something else and not finishing it. I started on the book on baptism back in 1988, and I got the first part of it done. It was published, Baptism of Biblical Study. Well, my intention was to go on and have Baptism of Historical Study and Baptism of Theological Study. But after I got that part done, I got interested in in the feminist issue, and so I started on that. And I wrote a little on that. I got a couple books on that, but I'm not finished with that. I've got another whole area to cover on that. But I stopped that and got interested in something else. I'm in this commentary on Romans now. And I talked them into letting me have two volumes. But Christy Welts' question to me was, now when you get volume one done, (laughs) you know what his question was. Are you going to go ahead and finish or are you going to get off onto something else? Well, anyway, I've got too many things I've already started to get involved in this, but I'd like to put this as a challenge to some of you to dig into this whole issue of postmodernism and how it's infiltrating into conservative Christianity because what it's going to come down to in the end is we are going to have to defend the whole process of apologetics because if this this, uh, explanation of truth is true, that is, Boy, that's not even a good way to say that, is it? If we accept this thesis that there's no such thing as objective truth, there's no room for traditional apologetics. Putting forth a statement and saying, here's why we believe it's true. So we're put into the odd position of having to give an apologetic for apologetics. I believe we need to do more apologetics in our churches. Third thing we, we need to do in response to this is to put more emphasis on the reality of truth in our 
preaching and teaching. A hundred years ago, I would never have preached this sermon because I wasn't alive, of course. But if I had been, you see, you would never, you wouldn't have to preach on this. You wouldn't have to teach on this. A hundred years ago, except in uh, a few odd places in the secular world, people believed there's such a thing as truth. This was not questioned. Back at the turn of the century, when uh, the fundamentalists, the forerunners of the modern evangelicals, were, were uh, fighting against uh, the growing influence of liberalism, every once in a while they would come to uh, a time when they felt they had to crystallize. They had to crystallize into a few pithy uh, phrases or statements what the essentials are, what the fundamentals are. But none of them felt it was necessary to begin with there's such a thing as truth. They started with something like the Bible is the inspired word of God. Namely, this is where you find the truth, but they didn't have to do the other. Now, when I wrote this little book that uh, Brother Mills mentioned, this is my commercial for the day, uh, this little book called uh, Faith's Fundamentals, Seven Essentials of Christian Belief, I decided that we'd have to back up. You couldn't just start with not even the existence of God. Actually, a uh, hundred years ago, you wouldn't even have to use include that as one of your essentials. And that wasn't something that the uh, fundamentalists felt belonged in their list. But I had to back up even before that and to start as the first fundamental, the first essential, there is such a thing as truth. And that's chapter one in that book. And we, we've just got to do more on this. I know it's, it's kind of dull reading, just like a lot of you are saying here. This is really dull. Give me some of those five minute sermons. Boy, those were exciting. All right, I know it. But sometimes you have to just grit your teeth and go through some of this stuff that is not necessarily inherently exciting because it's inherently important. And we need to lead our people through this. You know, it's not just coming... This, this relativism, this denial of objective and absolute truth, it's not just recently raising its head... It's been around for most of this century, and it's growing, and it's, it's, the, uh, it's the common view in the world in general today. A denial of truth. Relativism, although today it's called pluralism. Pluralism, that is uh, what you believe, what you believe, it's all true, and we need to respect each other's subjectively derived truth. You know, this is the reason why fundamentalist Christians are so uh, um, abhorred today, so hated today. It's because we still believe there is such a thing as truth. And on that basis, we are willing to say that somebody else's view, some other religion, some false religion is false. You see, the world wouldn't care that we were fundamentalist Christians as long as we didn't say that their view was not acceptable. But this is so common in the world. It comes across on, uh, in all the media, in all the entertainment. And I don't know where our children are, but they are. if we're not careful, they will soak this up. They will soak it up, and when they get into the college classrooms where this is being taught, it will sound natural, it will sound good, it will sound uh, wonderful to them. So I'm saying to you, we need to do more of what uh, Brother Neat did a while ago. Get up and quote these passages about truth, truth, and more truth in the Bible. And that's really my fourth point. If you're going to make a decision on what's the nature of truth and how you define truth and whether or not there is such a thing as truth, before you do anything else, look to see what the Bible says about truth.
Look to see what the Bible says about the nature and the place of truth. I must have done uh, pretty much what Cliff did. I, I took my concordance and I started back in the, the beginning of the Old Testament and went down through it. And I have many of the same passages that he had right here. Where, is Cliff, are you still here? Did you run out before I started? Oh, well. Are you, are you here? Where are you? Right there. Okay, you're still here. Okay. Just want to thank you for what you did. Great minds running, you know, same channels and all that. But here's, we, we need to do this, and we need to analyze what the Bible writers say. And here, here's, here's just in a nutshell what it seems to me, that the Bible writers from beginning to end assume the reality of objective, absolute truth based on revelation from the omniscient God. Now, this man who wrote this chapter that I read some from, he says, you can't have objective truth because... There is no such thing as a view from nowhere. In other words, everybody has his own perspective. Everybody starts with his own uh, uh, biases and his own prejudices. And so whenever we examine some claim to truth, we're always looking at it from some predetermined uh, position and understanding. And there is no such thing as a completely objective analysis of truth. You see, where somebody, somebody is free from these uh, preconceived notions. And he says, there is no such thing as a view from nowhere. And therefore, there can't be any such thing as objective truth. Well, I've got news for this man and for anybody else who thinks that there is no, no person who can make judgments about what is true and what is false totally objectively. There is such a person who can do this, and it's God. It's Almighty God who is omniscient, who knows everything, who Himself is the God of truth. This is your view from nowhere, quote-unquote. And when God speaks... Oh, here's another problem according to this, this postmodern view. Human language. Human language. It's just too frail, it's just too frail to be able to embody truth. Now, here's the oddest thing about this, it always is when you see people trying to defend some view of relativism. People will write, they'll, they'll sit down at their desk and they will think and they'll write and very carefully put into human language the view that they hold... And they will publish that and expect you to understand it and believe it. And then turn around and attack the whole idea that human language is able to communicate truth. You know, what you need to do is take a chapter like this and sit down with it and read it and put your own interpretation on it and say, Oh, this looks good. I, I see this is, what, this is what this means to me. And, you know, some odd thing and just send it to this guy and say, thank you for sharing this with me. This is what, what it means to me. Well, of course, he'd be indignant at that because he really does believe that human language can state uh, accurately and adequately what's in his mind. And I tell you this, if any human being, whoever it is, the most intelligent, the most scholarly human being, the, the, the best English teacher in the world or whatever, if any human being can state what is accurate and true and express what's in their mind, then certainly God can do it. In this chapter, this man says, human language is our own creation. That's baloney. God created human language because He created human beings in His image. And He, pre he included in that, that image the ability to use language. And the basis for truth, the basis for objective truth, is not some language that comes solely from within the human community. It's language that comes from God. If you know the truth about revelation, it'll make you free from relativism. The Bible writers assume from beginning to end the reality of objective, absolute truth based on the revelation 
of the omniscient God. And they assume that this truth can be communicated and understood. And they, they believe and they teach that if people do not study it, hear it, study it, understand it, and accept it, that they'll be condemned. They're responsible. Uh, to, to look at uh, the writing of some of these postmodernists, you would assume that, well, anybody that rejects Christianity, how can he be held responsible? It's not his fault, because the only way that the message comes to you is through this human language, and that's so inadequate. Certainly a person can't be blamed if he doesn't accept it. This is not the way the Bible writers think. They talk about truth, and they talk about falsehood, and they condemn those who reject the truth and accept the falsehood. These things are not just assumed in Scripture, but are specifically taught. For the rest of my time here, which is about 16 minutes according to my watch, I'm watching, I'm, I'm very careful. I just want to reflect a little bit on the words that Jesus gave us in John 8:32. This takes up right where Cliff left off. I think this is one of the, maybe the next to the last passages that he quoted. John eight thirty two. And by the way, it occurred to me while I was sitting here today that this statement of Jesus, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, was made in the midst of a very polemical situation. And this was, Jesus was not just standing up preaching for inspiration's sake. He was not just standing before a, a, a believing audience, giving them encouragement. But he is in a life or death debate with his enemies, with the Pharisees. And that's the context in which this statement occurs. In John 8, I can't read the whole uh, context, but just start about verse 23. He was saying to them, now, you are from below, and I am from above. You are, you are of this world. I'm not of this world. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, well, who are you? As if he hadn't already told them, you know. So Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Now, they didn't realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of, on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed, Well, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then they answered, Well, we are Abraham's offspring. We've never yet been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that? that will become free. I won't read any more. He goes on to talk about this. Down in verse 45, he says, Because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. Well, you could just take this passage by itself and draw these conclusions that I was talking about a while ago. Truth exists. And Jesus says it starts in the mind of God. Jesus says, I'm speaking truth to you, but I'm speaking what the Father said. What the Father has told me, that's what I am speaking to you. The things which I heard from him. I speak these things as the Father taught me. And certainly from this passage you can see that Jesus believed that truth can be communicated in human language because he says, I speak these things to the world. I speak these things to the world. He also believed that truth could be known. You shall know the truth, says Jesus. Now th this is what really gets me. See, the first part of this statement, you shall know the truth. Doesn't it seem to you, it does to me, that that one little sentence just smashes 
this whole postmodernist relativist position that there is no such thing as objective truth. Jesus says, you shall know the truth. And then he says, it, this, well, he doesn't say this here, but in the rest of the New Testament, we know that the truth can be objectively proved to be true. Isn't that the very purpose of miracles? From the very beginning when God worked miracles through human beings, this is what they would say. So that you may know that such and such is true. And then they perform the miracle. So that you may know that this is true. Then they perform the miracle. The whole purpose of miracles is to give objective proof of objective truth. When John wrote his gospel, he said near the end that Jesus performed many miracles that are not written in this book. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life through his name. Those who refuse to accept it are condemned, and Jesus told them so. Unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. If I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? When I went through the passages about truth, here's a question that occurred to me. Where does the Bible say you can look to find truth? And I was surprised. I came up with ten different, uh, ten different sources, in a sense, for truth. But they all begin with God. The first one is, truth is found in God. The Lord is abounding in truth, says Exodus 34, 6. Jesus said here, he who sent me is true. And Romans 3, verse 4 says, let God be found true though every man be found a liar. And I want to set that over against the claim that was made in that chapter that I just read pieces from, where the man says, well, if if nobody believed that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, then it wouldn't be true. Well, this verse shows that that isn't the case. The Apostle Paul says, even if the whole world, even if every human being was a liar and believed and taught falsehood, God would still be true. And what God says would be true, even if it were like a tree falling in a forest where there was no ear to hear it. It would be truth. That's where truth begins. All these other sources of truth are actually secondary because it starts from God. But I also notice that you can find truth even in nature. If you read in Romans 1, 18 and following, it says, The wicked suppress the truth that God has revealed through the creation around us. And they exchange that truth for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Truth, of course, is found in God's Word. Thy Word is truth. John 17, 17. And the, the, the Word is called the Word of truth. We were converted we were regenerated through the word of truth, James 1.18. Truth is found in the law of God. Brother Neat read this passage, Psalm 119.142. Thy law is truth. Verse 151 says, all thy commandments are truth. Truth is also found in the gospel because the gospel is called the message of truth in Ephesians 1.13. And we have the truth of the gospel, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. And of course, truth is found in Jesus Christ. He was full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. He taught the way of God in truth, and he said, I am the truth. Truth is also found in the Holy Spirit, who's called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17 and 15, 26. And he was the one who guided the apostles into all the truth. The apostles into all the truth. John 16, 13. And if that's true, then you find truth in the apostles' teaching. And on the birthday of the church, when the thousands became Christians, and it says they continued steadfastly, what did they continue steadfastly in? The very first thing they continued steadfastly in was the apostles' teaching. They were getting truth. This was their Food from the beginning. The apostles' teaching. 
because the Spirit guided them into all truth. And the Apostle Paul says he, as an apostle, was appointed a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 1 Timothy 2.7 Now here's, there are two more places where truth is to be found. And I want to say it this way. Two more places where truth is supposed to be found. But it isn't always necessarily so. One of them is the church. Maybe I could say it this way. In the true church, truth will always be found. But according to John 17, 17 to 20, the thing that sets the church apart from the world is the truth. He says, John 17, 17, sanctify them. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be set apart from things, from other things. Sanctify them, talking about the apostles specifically there. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, they may be sanctified in truth. And he says, I don't ask this just on behalf of these alone, but for all those who believe in me through their word. Sanctify them through the truth. When we give up the notion of truth, we're no different from the world. When we, when we are teaching false teaching, we're no different from the world. What sets us apart is our commitment to truth. And don't be ashamed of that. Be proud of it. And take the responsibility that God has given us for that. There's another passage related to the church. This is from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. In the world where people should be able to look today to see truth it's in the church it it really it it, uh, crushes my heart to see so many churches who have gone away from doctrine and who have geared their whole message to what the world wants we can't do it the church is the pillar the pillar and support of truth the other place where truth is supposed to be found is in the lives of Christians, individual Christians. And this does come through in the way we live and many other things. I can't give you the Bible passages. You can go look these up in your concordance. But according to the New Testament, Christians are are supposed to know the truth, believe the truth, love the truth, rejoice in the truth, Obey the truth, walk in truth, do the truth, be girded in truth, worship in truth, and support the truth. And on that last point where it says support the truth, you might want to make sure that the different people you're supporting, this is, of course, uh, 2nd and 3rd John, are preaching the truth. Well, that's my first point. Three minutes for my second point. First of all, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's nothing more important, nothing more practical than truth. Because what you believe to be true is going to determine what you do. I want to just go through a little outline that I prepared in uh, thinking about this idea, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Uh, I can't even stop to give you my reasoning and my explanation of these. But let me just show you what I'm talking about. What I tried to do was think of the things that we need, the things that people need worldwide, including Christians. Things uh, that we need and things that we need to get rid of, on the other hand. What is it that we need to be free of? You shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Free from what? And I just thought of some things like uh, things related to ultimate issues. We need to be free from relativism and subjectivism and doubts about Scripture and meaninglessness. And here's the idea. This is the way I was doing this. You shall know the truth about truth, and it will set you free from relativism. You shall know the truth about faith and what faith really is, and it will set you free from subjectivism. You shall know the truth about inspiration, and it will set you free from doubts about Scripture. You shall know the truth about the creation, and it will set you free from meaninglessness. 
Second category I had is truth related to Christian living. Things we need to get rid of. The love of sin, the power of sin, complacency towards sin, domination by demons, idolatry, pride, legalism, selfishness, indifference toward the lost, and apathy toward missions. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You shall know the truth about repentance and it will set you free from the love of sin. You shall know the truth about the Holy Spirit and it will set you free from the power of sin. You shall know the truth about the wrath of God. It will set you free from complacency towards sin. You shall know the truth about Satan and it will set you free from the domination by demons. You shall know the truth about God. It will set you free from idolatry. You shall know the truth about sin. It will set you free from pride. You shall know the truth about grace and it will set you free from legalism. You shall know the truth about love and it will set you free from selfishness. You shall know the truth about hell and it will set you free from indifference toward the lost. You shall know the truth about the revelation of God in nature. It will set you free from apathy toward missions. Here's a category, truth related to good mental health. You shall know the truth about being created in God's image, and that will set you free from low self-esteem. You shall know the truth about forgiveness. It will set you free from guilt feelings and guilt itself. You shall know the truth about the church as a fellowship. It will set you free from loneliness. You shall know the truth about heaven and its glory. And it will set you free from self-pity about the little sufferings you have to go through here. You shall know the truth about God's providence. It will set you free from worry about tomorrow. You shall know the truth about the kingdom of God. And it will set you free from, I started to say, fear of Bill Clinton. But I decided to say it this way. You shall know the truth about the kingdom of God and it will set you free from pessimism about the future. One, one last point. Truth, truth that's related to spiritual security. You shall know the truth about baptism and it will set you free from false assurance. You shall know the truth about justification by faith and it will set you free from doubts about your salvation. You shall know the truth about the resurrection of Jesus It'll set you free from the fear of death. And you shall know the truth about the cross of Christ. It'll set you free from the fear of judgment. See, the thing about all that is, just knowing the truth about these things sets you free.